Welcome to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Art Laws is a podcast that explores cultural outlaws, both present and past, from artists and filmmakers to musicians and writers. Kiki Smith is one of the most influential visual artists in the contemporary world. Since the 1980s, Smith has created a prolific and provocative body of work that explores embodiment in the natural world. Utilizing a broad variety of materials and mediums, including sculpture, printmaking, photography, drawing, and textiles, Smith's unique style draws on mythology, folklore, fairy tales, and religious iconography, while also exploring the human form and all of its frailty and mystery. We had the privilege of speaking with Kiki Smith on the eve of the unveiling of her rare and momentous public work, a monumental mosaic installation inside the new Grand Central Madison train station in New York City, commissioned by the MTA. This work includes five individual large-scale mosaics depicting several Long Island landscape scenes, including river light, inspired by the way the sunlight hits the East River, the waterway, rendered in stunning shades of indigo, the presence, which shows a deer among striking gold reeds, the spring, featuring fowl surrounded by forests during springtime growth, and the sound, which showcases Long Island's waterway in a magnificent 28-foot-wide mural. Smith has been the subject of numerous solo exhibitions worldwide, including over 25 museum exhibitions. Her work has been featured at five Venice Biennales, and in 2017 was awarded the title of Honorary Royal Academician by the Royal Academy of Arts in London. In 2006, Smith was recognized by Time Magazine as one of the Time 100, the people who shape our world. Her numerous awards include the Skohegan Medal for Sculpture, the Nelson A. Rockefeller Award, the U.S. Department of State Medal of Arts, and the Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Sculpture Center. Kiki is also an adjunct professor at NYU and Columbia University. We join the artist as she walks through the Lower East Side of Manhattan on a late afternoon. We welcome Kiki Smith to Art Laws. All right, Kiki, so one of the many things I find fascinating about you is your early life. In the past, you've compared your family and upbringing in New Jersey to that of the Adams family, which I think is really <laughs> funny. <laughs> but what is it about your childhood that makes you come to this analogy? Oh, well, it's sort of very, it's a, it's a thin analogy. It was just, we had one of my father's brothers put a, a gravestone in front of the house that said Smith on it. So it was, you know, we were just, and also, you know, because my father was an artist and my mother was a singer, you know, we were different than many of the people in the neighborhood. I mean, their lives were different right. than many of the people in the neighborhood. And so I think we've, I think felt like we kind of lived in our own realm or something like that. Right. For people that may not know, your your father was Tony Smith, who was a, a big pioneer in minimalist sculpture. And, you know, your mother was Jane Lawrence, an opera singer and actress. So I'm just curious, I mean, what, as, as a child in this very artistic home, what did you gain from this environment? What did you learn from them? Well, first, you know, I would say that, you know, my parents were very self-directed and self-motivated and were also the source of their own energy. So I think it taught us to trust and follow ourselves. Right. You know, myself and my sister Seaton, who's an artist, and my other sister Didi, and be 
I wouldn't say like self-reliant, but certainly to trust one's own vision. You and your sisters worked with your father constructing models and geometric forms growing up? Yes, yes. We had uh, made a die cut for him for octahedrons and tetrahedrons. And so we spent a great deal of time putting together octahedrons and tetrahedrons and then and then assembling them. You know, he would order us what order to put them in and we would do that. You know, and his work was very a very active part of our child and yard work. <laughs> we did a lot. We did endless amounts of yard work. <laughs> so would you say that was your first exposure to art and art making with your father and your sisters? Yes, yes. And then, you know, my father and mother were, my father's really more like an abstract expressionist. Mm-hmm. But they, could, they had artwork of contemporary artists friends of theirs that they had bought. So I grew up, I mean, my first memory, one of my first, I mean, not my first memory, but maybe my second or third was being told not to touch the paintings. Um, (laughs) So I grew up with paintings of Barnett Newman and Jackson Pollock and Clifford Still and Ralph Humphrey and Samuel. And, you know, all different people like of my father's generation and then younger, mm-hmm. uh, Franz Klein, and then, then the next generation, you know, or two down of people, artists that were my father's students, like Chris Wilmarth. And so you were really others. just immersed, it sounds like. And you, you said yeah. once that, that you didn't read as a child, but you liked looking at things. And curious, what was that about and what were your feelings about school? Well, I, I think I had just a difficulty reading. Mm-hmm. You know, I had difficulty learning to read. It was too fast and too slow for me at the same time. And so, you know, I think I had to develop being able to learn things through seeing. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm better at seeing what is visible than invisible, unfortunately. <laughs> a reading, you know, I read what is visible more than what is invisible. But, but you know, I think like, you know, if you have certain ways that you don't have access to what is going on, you develop other ways to be present and aware. Mm-hmm. I can really see a lot, actually. Were you totally self-taught or did you ever go to art school? No, I mean, I had my father, I asked my father as a teenager to give me drawing lessons. But, you know, he taught me his ideas about drawing. And then I went to art school for a year and a half. And then I came to New York. Your your sister was pretty influential in, in your art making. Had more direction in terms of where she wanted to go with her art early on? Well, yeah, Seaton, Seaton very early wanted to paint and then my father bought her paints and then she went into photography made still life also still life painting and art for painting and architecture so she was much clearer you know like years before I was of what to be doing in life and so she was a very big influence on me and also you know for particularly for making still life that my father had made still us and then Seaton did. And then when I first came to New York, I just drew 
They're like cigarettes and things that were in front of me, bad things that were in front of me. Uh, to try to learn perspective. Right. Yeah. But so in a certain way, I am self-taught, but it's, I'm learning, you know, but I think all artists are learning on the job, you know, like you're learning as you go along and over years you get to, you know, incorporate more nuanced understandings of making or also learn whole new skill sets. And and the more you know in your body, the more you can move it from working with one material to another. Yeah, the, the more you understand the processes and you more easily can include new methodologies or materials. So in terms of your spiritual and religious upbringing, did that influence you at all in terms of your artwork? I think it did a great deal. I don't know if it does as much now as when I was younger, but my father would, went to Jesuit school, and so I think that's something that he grappled with his whole life and pondered. And my mother sort of ended more towards Hinduism and Buddhism. But I think that all of those things, and then also just growing up in the 60s and 70s, you know, there was tremendous influence of Hinduism and Buddhism in culture, you know, in popular culture. Mm-hmm. So I think all those things impacted people oh. my age. There are a lot of biblical themes that appear in your work, like the Virgin Mary, and you were thinking of drawing... Noah's Ark, but with dead animals and things uh-huh. like this. I'm, I'm just curious if that's influenced by the religious roots that you were exposed to. I think that those stories are very vivid and rich and, you know, also what they present to you, you know, are sometimes, you know, complex things to grapple with as being a person and, you know, like in one sense, you have tons of saints and women saints, and all saints, you know, saints all have their attributes and are invoked with certain powers to intercede in the world. And then you have the Virgin Mary, but then also all those things, you know, in particular, very limited. Still, like this idea of being chaste and stuff as a virtue, and all these things, rather than to celebrate sort of fecundity or something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, makes it a complex thing that one has to kind of grapple with. But it also is very rich, you know, it still has very many rich elements that are attractive. You know, the compassion, you know, compassionate deity or a compassionate person. Right. Opening one's arms or something. You know, all of beliefs, different belief systems that come from cultures and deep within cultures for long periods of time have great complexity mm-hmm. to work with or to investigate, you know, to investigate and see what parts you want to continue and what parts you want to let lie. Mm-hmm. Right. What's interesting to me, though, as a, as a young person, you had all these abstract expressionists around you and all these modern artists around you. And what's interesting, you were drawn to the figurative. 
Now, was that out of rebellion or was that out of just sort of the, it was so shocking and new to you because you'd been around so much? Yeah, no, I think it was strange. I think it was more like it was different, but I also always loved in church. I loved the stories and the attributes. Mm-hmm. So they, that that's also, uh, I mean, I didn't really, I, outside of church and sometimes going to the museums or something, you know, I didn't see much figuration, but, you know, it also poses a very great wealth of history hmm. and richness. And, you know, the richness of images and storytelling. You know, like when I was a teenager, I loved Chagall. I loved Chagall and Bread and Puppet Theater, you know, people that worked with figuration and with sort of mysticism and magicalness. Mm-hmm. Um, and fairy tale or things like that. Bread and Puppet Theater was on the Lower East Side. Was that where? Uh, you... They were in Glover. No, they were in Glover, Vermont at the time. Yeah, oh. they were. But actually, they were at Kate Farm. They had been in Coney Island, but they were at Kate Farm okay. when I first met them. But they came to New York and they performed in New York a great deal. You know, they were very active with theater and still are. Right. And, you know, to me, one of the miracles of America. Right. Speaking of New York and, and, and you're in New York right now walking around, you came to New York in the late 70s. And, uh, you know, we've on the show, we've talked to Eric Fischel, Carol Armitage, even Kathleen Turner. They all came to New York at the same time. And they all, you know, it was an incredible time to pursue art. What was New York like for you at that time? Well, I had come earlier. I came in 72, I guess, but then I left and then didn't come back till 76. So I was 22 when I came back Mm -hmm. and all these blocks here were gone. (laughs) They were rubble. (laughs) Everything halfway up Avenue C was rubble. And it was, you know, it was a place where, you know, I walked in the streets at night not to get near buildings or near rats or people. (laughs) <laughs> near buildings but it was a moment where the city had gone almost gone bankrupt so in a certain way it had a lot of freedom to it because there was very little expectation and I met young people yeah I met young artists and I met a lot of artists who had gone to the Whitney program hmm. and they all made for the most part a kind of representational work I mean, some of it was film, some of it was video, some of it was, they were producing magazines, but people were making representation. And I was, you know, drawing packs of cigarettes. So I was there and I felt like, you know, I was definitely drawing oriented or sculpture oriented. And many people were using more contemporary technologies, but, you know, I was very excited meeting people sort of my generation of people mm-hmm. in New York. And also because it was very inexpensive to live here. And, you know, I didn't have any lifestyle or anything. Nobody had a lifestyle by then and or that time. And so, you know, you just had to eat and do as little work as possible to eat <laughs> and pay your rent. So, you know, it was a tremendous time to have an exciting time to be able to visit people's studios and hang out and hang out at night. And there was a bar Magoo's where they would give you a tab for trading artwork. So, you know, that was fantastic. What fun. I would 
Yeah, well, it was really great. It was great to meet older artists and younger artists and, you know, everyone. And the such, you know, that New York has such a diversity of artists and you could embrace all of it. It wasn't that you had to choose a kind of work. Right. Well, you were part of collaborative projects. I imagine that was a great, a great, uh, many different artists working in different mediums. It was probably great as, as you were developing as an artist, I'm sure. Yes. No, that's what I was talking about. That, that oh, those were the, the, okay. the Whitney. Oh, um, okay. Okay. Home. Yeah. So many of the people I met in Colombia became my friends for, for many, many years. And it was exciting because they were thinking about different forms of representation and of exhibitions and making theme shows or pop-up shows or breaking into buildings to address social issues in the neighborhood. Or, you know, there was really a lot that went on. Mm-hmm. I've always been obsessed with the Times Square show. I can't find much no. about <laughs> it, but I know that you were part of that show. Yeah. Yeah. I made a painting that I that was painted on cloth as I made my paintings as sort of blankets or sheets for my bed originally. <laughs> and then I hung it, I hung it there. But I was very minor in all those. I mean, I was very marginal to collab because the other people, maybe they were like a year older than me or two years older than me, but they were much more with it kind of, I think because of going to the Whitney program. And I was much more naive and you know, I tagged along in it. But then they made a store in the Times Square show. Kara Perlman and Tom Otternis organized a store, and I started making T-shirts because of that. Charlie Ahern taught me how to make T-shirts, and then because of that, I realized I really liked making multiples and making, yeah, making multiple objects that could be sold inexpensively. And, you know, that's something that really, you know, sort of brought me deeper into printmaking and and making paperweights and things like that, that has been like a big part of my art life since. Mm -hmm. Soon after, in the early 80s, you began a really expansive investigation of the body. And your work with the body deals with raw and sometimes difficult subject matter for people who don't always want to look at bodily processes Uh and fluids. And you confront peeing and menstruation and internal organs. So you were exploring all of these things Again, at a time where, from my understanding, it was mostly conceptual art in terms of the art scene. What was the initial response from both the art world and the public for this daring? I didn't exist in the art world. (laughs) We were just in our own little, you know, we were in our own gang or something. But I started it, I guess, about 78, 79. A friend of mine gave me a copy of Grey's Anatomy. And I found that that really resonated for me and, and gave me sort of a language I could speak through and delve into and also was empowering personally and socially to know about the body outside of forces that, you know, felt constrictive or controlling in the society. And then as the 80s went on, you know, it became more and more evident how constrictive the society was in relationship to the body and oppressive. And so, you know, there was just, you know, I was just didn't want to be owned by the social histories or circumstances of the time. And 
So, you know, I had to also deal with my own, you know, body imaging, mental problems, and discomfort in being in a body and all of these things. That is an ongoing, a quieter ongoing activity, I would say. But it's quieter than it was 40 years ago or something. It was quieter? What do you mean by that? My own personal discontent mm-hmm. or something with being in a body or self-criticalness of mm-hmm. being in a body, that activity has quieted mm-hmm. over the last 40 years. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, that was very much for me was like, you know, I was young, so I was trying to like, you know, figure out how to be a person. Right. You know, and through a body and also see how disruptive it was to people's lives. So trying to see how to get away from the more corrosive aspects of society that hinder people. So art as sort of an escape and a sense of liberation. Well, certainly as as trying to make a model of healing for yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that was for me a big... You know, I find that my work is healing to me, and it brings me awareness to to what what is significant to me. You know, I ju- you just like you just do something just to see what happens, mm-hmm. but then afterwards you realize that it has it benefits mm-hmm. your your own integration. Right. You know, mm-hmm. but also because I don't have the idea for my work to go anywhere particularly. Mm-hmm. or to have any constant meaning or agenda or things like that. You know, I just did what was in front of me to be done. Well, I, I think about sort of later in the 80s, and you had dealt with a lot of personal loss. Your sister, uh-huh. close friends like David Vonarovich, people that you were very close to who you know passed away from AIDS-related illnesses. Uh-huh. I'm just wondering if, you, if that shifted any way in which you examined or portrayed the body. Was that a conscious shift for you? Oh, I just, it just is something that sort of told me to pay attention to it. And then at some point in the early 90s, like maybe around 94 or something like that, just other things took my attention. You know, more nature, you know, like, I said I went to Harvard and this woman told me, I mean, I was drawing at the Peabody Museum during a residency at Mass College of Art and a woman told me what the projections for were for the demise of animals, mammals was in the next years because of loss of habitat and now, you know, and climate change and all of these things. And, and then I felt like, oh, who cares about people? I better pay attention to other things. You know, but I, but it was also a moment where identity politics and sexual preference politics and identity and, you know, things were coming into being subject matters that I thought I didn't have much to contribute to. So I felt like I didn't feel like I had to hold the flag for the body anymore or something. I didn't have to like, I could just go just follow and I have it, you know, sometimes I very, you know, I think about organs or, you know, the organs in the body are different things, but I don't think of it in a way to speak through my experience anymore. 
you know, I love it and I love when other people do, but I don't go back in that direction again. You know, sometimes I wish I could, but it just, it, you just follow your work. Your work takes you places. You say, yes, that's where I'm willing to go. Right. I think of Jersey Crows. That's a work of yours that's always sort of haunted me in a lot of ways. But I think that came around the same time you were at the Peabody, maybe a year later. And that had a lot to do with pesticides and the poisoning that was affecting our bodies. But you uh-huh. chose to show it in a way, you, you chose to show this danger in a way by showing the, the sort of these these crows that had, had fallen from the sky. I mean, it's yeah. interesting that we were still connected the body was still connected through your work, but you showed it through the frailty of the earth and how that would affect us. Yeah, today. yeah, but it was, I was just, because I was so shocked by it. Yeah. You know, I was so shocked because I was just, I came from Germany. I was, I was taking a car, you know, a taxi from the airport. And I was on the radio that all these crows had died. And, you know, crows are super intelligent, interesting creatures or birds. and they can speak, they can do a great deal of things. You know, they're very intelligent. And to me, it was so pitiful and upsetting that I thought I, and, and they had died in New Jersey and I'm from New Jersey. So I thought I have to make a memorial for the crows. And I always have these dopey ideas like, oh, they're going to need a memorial for the crows, you know? And then like in my world, they need crow memorials. They need, <laughs> com- you know, memories. They need yeah. to be physical manifestations of loss, you know, that people can mourn and bring attention and awareness to the detriment of our lives on the natural world. But of course, that's not somebody's first inclination necessarily mm-hmm. can you tell us about your sculpture rapture and and what inspired this rapture i had made a series of images of little red riding hood and the most thing that shocked me about little red riding hood was that you know she and the wolf are sort of the same size mm-hmm. and i thought them as oppositional but then i thought of them as sort of the same thing and yeah that they represent the uncontrollable and then I thought about the image of, of um, when the huntsman comes and cuts open the wool and the grandmother or the little red riding hood and the grandmother come, are standing out. And then I thought in my mind in a convoluted way, it's like the Virgin Mary standing on the moon, like this vertical, the figure being vertical and the natural element being horizontal. And then I just thought, I also like Venus on the half shell, you know, and I just thought, oh, what if I just make that as a person? You know, like, I mean, I made a print called, I think I made a print called Born or something first. And that was the woman and the little, the little red riding hood and the grandmother coming out of the wolf. And and I made that as a life-size print. But then I thought, oh, it'd be nice to make it just as a sculpture of just a naked woman because I didn't used to make clothes on people because I didn't didn't want to think about specificity of fashion and time element with fashion mm-hmm. so I just so I made it like that but it was also well, like about a horizontal and vertical uh-huh and just for our listeners I, I wanted to describe it's a large scale sculpture of a woman nude stepping out of a wolf's belly and it really does remind me a lot of Botticelli's Venus from a clamshell oh that's good <laughs> yeah <laughs> No, it's, it's magnificent and striking, but wolves are a recurring figure in your work. And what is the significance? 
cats have wolves. Well, I think, mm. I mean, I think they, they represent, I was going to say they represent the divine, but they represent the wilderness, you know, and the uncontrollable wilderness, even though like they're very orderly and social and, you know, have very organized lives and stuff like that. They represent something also that is fearful to us. But since I have never lived in a place where there was a large wolf population, I have never felt that fear. Like I like snakes very much. And many people I am in close proximity with do not like snakes and do not like wolves because they have been in close proximity to them growing up, you know, but I'm from New Jersey. I don't have those. Those aren't my, what I fear in life, but yeah, they're beautiful. I mean, I don't really like, you know, I like, like I'm a cat person. I'm not literally like a dog person. A wolf is her, you know, many people like this or wolf as an extension of dogs, but I just like them as their own being. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I'm curious, fairy tales are a popular motif in your work as well. Did that hark back to your earlier years or was that something, I mean, obviously this is your own spin on fairy tales, but how do they figure yeah. into your work? Well, I, I mean, I was very intrigued and moved and engaged and interested in fairy tales as a child, certainly. You know, that was the main literature, I guess, was, was fairy tales. And, you know, and I grew up in a house with, my father was born in 1912, so I grew up in a house where the books were uh, from the late 1800s, and that was sort of the great moment of the construction of childhood, but also a moment of uh, really renaissance in childhood literature and illustration. And so, yeah, they were very rich and vivid and wonderful works to behold. So I was interested in at at a time for a while because it was the space of intersection between human and animals that could be adversarial or it could be supportive, like you know having kindred spirits protection or something like that, you know, in the sort of magical realm affair of those stories, mm-hmm. and we also for a while I was very interested. In it. Then it also went away. You know, things come and they go. You express a deep interest in the process of art making and the process of discovery. So when you talk about things coming and going, it seems like that's the thing that really ignites you. And you've said that most of your work comes from printmaking and or some reiteration of that from the printed image to these three-dimensional to photographs. Can you tell us a little more about that and that continuum and evolution in your work? Yeah, I mean, I think that in a certain way that comes from my father from making his work, great deal of his work being based on octahedrons and tetrahedrons, that you have these sort of images, you, know, you have like a shape or something that could keep changing. So, you know, that that's, let's say this idea that you can have an image and it can keep, that's malleable, it can keep changing and become you know, show different nuances and forms of itself and reveal the way, you know, like maybe a character or I would think like in a repertoire theater, like a person can become all these different characters and, and reveal aspects of themselves while retaining something of themselves. And, and I'm often, a tremendous amount of my work is really, you know, like making an image and then taking that image and yeah, putting it into a different material or 
having images like I like 20 years ago I made all these gold and silver shells because I was trying to learn about reposé how to do metal reposé and five years ago 10 years ago I started making some prints of shells that are still not finished but then this year I started making shells again and now I finished prints and then I thought oh I can take those shells in the print and scan them in the computer and use them in tapestry or use them in mosaic or use them in another form so I like this uh, having Mm -hmm. life you know life after life Mm -hmm. you also said that you sometimes use the same model or the same sculpture over and over again to take different forms I like also like the idea of animation. You know, I mean, like I I would make, like I made a cast of a friend of mine standing very straight and stiff. And then I would like cast that in wax and then chop her all up and reconfigure her like you would in a collage. But in a, in a um, sculpture, it's much more dramatic, all that chopping. So your work uh, also deals with a wide range of materials from bronze to plaster glass porcelain tapestry paper and just to name a few so can you tell us about the materiality of your work and what draws you to exploring such a range of materials well mostly because their materials have incredibly rich histories how they have been treated some have been ill-treated but some you know they have a physical property to them and then they have intangible properties to them or you know unseen properties but they also have social economic histories i mean they have everything material has a history and very complex histories you know histories of movement histories of ravishing the earth histories of all these different things so when you make something out of anything it's not neutral it carries all those histories with him whether one knows those histories or not they still carry it carries all that knowledge with it you know so you choose things i more just because they tell you what to do or just by accident someone gives you the opportunity to do something that then that is like i made a lot of tapestries and that was because tapestries are made of cloths that i you know woven I had to think about those materials. But when I was young, I made everything from cloth. You know, before I started making sculpture or drawings, I made things out of cloth. And so they all come, and sometimes through opportunity, and some just because something is in front of you that you didn't pay attention to before. I find it fascinating. You've always been known as somebody that works at home. You you didn't have a studio uh-huh. until very recently, I think. Uh-huh. And I just wonder, do you find that art consumes your private and professional life or is there ever a separation for you? Much, as, to, as the, <laughs> much to the chagrin of my family, I would say. But um, yeah, I have a studio now for the first time in my, in my life, but we moved into the studio. You did? So, <laughs> so much to the chagrin of my family. But for me, I, you know, my father worked at home and... I think because of that, my sister and I always worked at home. You know, it was just our model was to work at home. Like that we didn't need to go out. And most of my adult life, I lived by myself. So it didn't really matter to anyone else, you know, that there was my art supplies under every piece of furniture, every <laughs> on every surface. But now I try to have a little bit of separation of, church and state but it creeps it's always creeping into living space 
you've worked with so many different foundries and you've worked with different artisans all over the world. Has that been a conscious decision to get out of your home, to branch out? Has that been, well, or is that just a necessity? I, I think it was, a, I also believed in the collective ownership of materials. Like I thought, I don't need to replicate the world. The world exists. All these tools exist in a place where that can be, you know, I pay for the access to them, but you don't have to clean up afterwards. And I don't have to have all the skills. I much prefer to work with people who, you know, are good craftspersons and have a high knowledge of what they're doing. You know, and that's a great pleasure of mine to work with people that know what they're doing because then it gives me freedom just to do what comes from my input as part of it. But yeah, I just thought I didn't need to own everything. It wasn't interesting to me to have a big studio or a shop or and my father, you know, my father ordered his sculptures from a boiler makers, you know, and I guess that I you know, I just grew up with that as a normal thing. And so for me going to a foundry, also yeah, going to a foundry, going to print shops, it's wonderful and it's nice to be with other people in the day. You know, it's more congenial just everybody sitting around making dumb jokes and having fun and stuff you know and then go home you know mm -hmm. but I don't have to replicate that in my house no I'm just I'm wondering you know you've you have been so fearless in terms of like exploring every medium I think known to man so is there something that you've yet to tackle is there a medium that you've yet to explore at this point um, or want to not one that I needed to particularly, I guess. I mean, I like jewelry a lot. I would like to someday learn more about jewelry. And now I just made mosaics. And for the first time, and, you know, I made the layouts and the mosaicists make the mosaics. But that was a, a wonderful experience. And also I've been making tapestries for the last 10 or 12 or so years. And that's something I find very rich also. Because I can do my part well, and then it gets sort of goes into other people's hands. Right. And, uh, but it retains part of it retains enough of me that I can take ownership of it. Yeah, I, I always wonder your work in terms of augmented reality or virtual reality. Have you ever thought about taking it in that direction? Uh, I never did. Some people were trying to make an animation of my work at some point, but I don't know, then they disappeared. So I guess it, nothing ever came of it. But no, I also, because my work in, in general tends to be very, I would say it's like monotheistic. It's like a singular image, like a singular central image. I can deal with about that much at a time. <laughs> and that's why making the tapestries and the mosaics were very good for me because, you know, I had to try to fill out space, you know, or as my inclination is like just I can handle one thing at a time but you know I think those things take a sense of I mean maybe they don't have to but my imagination of them is that they make seamless reality and my reality has a lot of holes in it or a lot of, it's punctured a lot so <laughs> I don't know I never thought about it but you know you never know what happens well some of your earlier works are said to reflect social discourse of the 1980s, particularly focusing on death and the AIDS epidemic, and then you turn to feminism and abortion rights and animal rights. Are you confronting politics through your artwork today at all? And if so, what are you confronting politically? I don't know. You know, I, I just I just do what 
is apparent for me to do. I certainly, you know, since the 90s, I remember I remember the first Earth Day in New York and my father and his students went to Madison Square Park, I think, and made something or other. So, you know, certainly since that time on, but, you know, more in the 90s, I moved towards making images of nature. And I can't say that it's more like for myself to pay attention to the divinity or to the divine around us so apparent in the natural world uh, that once I said, oh, I had a dream that I saw a bird, you know, that and like I and that I had this idea there'd be a time in my life where I wouldn't see birds or I'd be saying that to someone that I wouldn't see birds. And that was so shocking to me because birds were very apparent in my childhood. And so, you know, I I think that People, many people are living very overtly experiencing the change of climate and, you know, weather pattern changes or whatever and encroachments and destructions of nature. You know, where I live, it's slightly more subtle, but it's still, it's coming soon to our neighborhood. You know, so, and I've had both of my homes that I lived in in the last 20 years have been affected by the hurricanes. So, you know, all of those things have implication. But for me, I'm just going like, pay attention, pay attention. I mean, I think nature is not something that one can comprehend. Mm-hmm. You know, I can make images of it, but it's incomprehensible in its complexity. I think like you can have momentary insights into it or visions of it, but for the most part, you know, it's totally incomprehensible. I was just going to say, you said something really beautiful recently, that if nature and profound, that if nature disappears, our concepts or identity or anything about what humans are disappears. I think that's true. Mm -hmm. I think that's true. I mean, I think a great deal of our, and certainly that was my interest in fairy tales and mythology and stuff, because that was still a vision of life that was much more, they were much more seen in Congress with one, or in, not in Congress in the way of not being together, but in Congress with one another. Yeah, that seems very apparent to me. I mean, you can say it's in a weird way why why all the virtual realities and cartoons and animations are so heavily use the images of animals because it is that those things are are not in our daily life Hmm. you know and less and less you know Mm -hmm. we sterilize animals because they're inconvenient to us we sterilize people because they're inconvenient to us you know it's very those things have long-term ramifications you know the way that destroying uh and not protecting heirloom or origin plants and stuff you know limits life a lot do you find it your responsibility as an artist to bring these images to the forefront so that they're not lost or that they that people don't forget or or no no i don't know if i feel responsible as an artist particularly at all (laughs) <laughs> you know, for any to myself or to anything, I just, mm. I just do things because it occurs to me more than other things do. Right. I want to be uh, talk about something that's coming up with Grand Central Terminal. I think this is 
Really interesting as a New Yorker. I think this must be a, a, a very interesting sort of full circle moment. You are about to do a project or unveil a project. Can you tell us more about that? Well, I was asked by the MTA to make uh, mosaics for Grand Central Madison, which is a new train station that connects the Long Island Railroad to the east side of Manhattan. And, you know, I think it's been being built for the last 20 years. And I was very sort of astonished and grateful to have the opportunity to make mosaics. I have worked in stained glass for about 25, 30 years, and I worked particularly in one stained glass factory in Germany. So I had the opportunity to go make mosaics there because they make a great deal of mosaic. And it never occurred to me that I would ever make a mosaic in my life because it's so in-depth you know, such an in-depth process and complex process. So I'm very grateful to have had that experience. And I tried to make, uh, I mean, I made images that relate to Long Island and to this whole area of nature, sort of images of nature, you know. But I mean, they're not, they're not particularly realistic or anything like that, but they give some sense of something. And, you know, because I thought it's, People are commuting and they're surrounded by man-made everything. So it's it's maybe like a respite to have an right. image of nature. And it's also like it brings people back to their homeland again, where they're going or where they left. You know, that nature is the source of everything and and what is the most, you know, vital in in any arena. So I did that. I used to commute from the Long Island Railroad, and I wish it was there when I commuted because <laughs> it was so drab. And this is permanent, right? Yeah. That's yeah. beautiful. That should be beautiful. I can't it's wait really to see exciting. That. It's going to enliven all of our experience as we yeah. take these trains. And you take trains a lot, so it's it's also fitting. And you've said that you spend so much much of your time on trains, and especially in your daily life teaching at Columbia and NYU. And you're such a busy artist, but you devote yourself to teaching. What do you hope to impart for the next generation of artists? Oh, you know, I have, I mean, that is an agenda I have. I just, I really like printmaking and it's been something that has really enriched my life. And, you know, all you want to do with teaching is empower other people to have their own experience. You know, I'm not interested in them having my experience, but I do really find it very exciting to see someone discovering a medium that they just run with. And, and you know, it's not often because it's a very peculiar activity, but, you know, every year one or two students 10 years later are still doing it and still, and it's really driving their work and they have found a language for them. You know, it's about, about, it turned itself off, but I, I didn't have time to deal with it. <laughs> so I just like printmaking. I like printmaking, and I like if some younger people find that that's a vital language for themselves. If they don't, there's lots of other languages, but the ones that do, it's very exciting. It's exciting to see people discovering themselves through a language, and it's also very exciting you know, for me to make up weird ways of teaching them things that I don't know about, you know, that I'm just sort of 
blindly doing so and then then I always learn something about it and I teach with a friend of mine Valerie Hammond so we're very good at doing it together and uh, you know we've been doing it together for about 20 years now so it's always engaging to me great this has been so much fun at the end of this we do this thing called the quick draw six questions Uh 60 seconds one more Uh answers are you game Uh You can. I never know the answer to those. Well, we- <laughs> Alex, take it away. Okay. Favorite film? Um, I liked Once Upon a Time in the West. Favorite song? I like the Beatles' Blackbird song. And I like Silent Night, too. Most underrated artist? Everyone. <laughs> Everyone. <laughs> Everyone. Every artist is a miracle. Everyone. Favorite museum? I like Anga van der Kunst Museum in Vienna, the Museum of Applied Art, because they were very fundamental in my life. And I love also my favorite, my real favorite is Incel Hombroich. Favorite work of art? The Apocalyptic Tapestries in Angers. That's one of them, but that's one, that's a top one. I was talking about that today. Favorite guilty pleasure? I don't know. Those are ones that, what are, what is the guilty pleasure? <laughs> My whole much. life is about indulgence. So, <laughs> so, so, so <laughs> I would say my life is my favorite guilty pleasure. Oh, that's I love that. The, the answer, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank Frank. you very much. Art Laws is produced by Alex Zappa and Robin Rosenfeld. Music is by Voidcore. And the episode you just heard was recorded in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Follow us on Instagram at Art Laws Pod. And subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a comment and give us a rating. We'll be back soon with more. Bye. Bye.